subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. When do we take control of our lives and our destiny? We're a small country, but we punch way above our weight. Like, I'm filming now at this stage, to be honest with you. I thought it was one of the hardest things to do. It was horrendous. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Okay, uh... People were asking a lot yesterday, is Nadim okay? Have we any update on Nadim? I can tell you we do have an update on Nadim and we will fill you in a little later on what we found out yesterday afternoon and uh, people have reached out to assist Nadim. Uh, we had contact, direct contact from the Taoiseach's office with regard to Nadim. So uh, we'll speak We'll speak about that a bit later on this morning. Also, if a lot of people are talking about this supply chain crisis, and that's what it is, this supply chain crisis in the UK. We know so many petrol stations, for example, now closed in Britain for the simple reason is they don't have any petrol. Britain has petrol, but they can't get it to the garages. People wondering now, could that happen here? Could we have the same things that we're seeing all over the UK, like empty shelves in supermarkets? Is that about to happen? Is it being caused by Brexit? Is it being caused by... What is it being, what is it being caused by? We'll look at that a little bit later on. But there is a very big story about to be broken 
uh, by RTE Investigates tonight. And we've said this before and say it again. When they get their teeth into an issue, the people at RTE Investigates really dig deep into it. And a story from Cork University Hospital. RTE has... uh, confirmed this morning that an investigation is underway at CUMH after multiple baby organs were incinerated abroad without the consent or knowledge of bereaved parents. It's a very distressing and upsetting story. Aoife Hegarty is the reporter involved. Aoife, good morning. Good morning. What have you been able to find out and, and who is affected? Well, this incident came to light in May last year when out of the blue, these 18 families who had lost babies at Cork University Maternity Hospital months earlier received unexpected calls from hospital staff to tell them that organs which had been retained at post-mortem stage had been incinerated and they wouldn't be able to get them back. Now, HSE standards are very clear. They say when families agree to organs being retained at post-mortem for further examination, hospitals should do one of two things. They support the next of kin by either facilitating their return or arranging their sensitive disposal by burial or cremation only. So you can imagine the shock of these parents when they got those calls. And and there are people like Leona Birmingham and Glenn Callanan, who you'll hear from in tonight's report. They had twin boys, Lee and Lewis, at CUMH in September 2019. But one of their boys, baby Lee, died a few hours after birth and they agreed to a postmortem to try and find out what happens. Now, Leona tonight will describe the call that she got last May as being a blur and that she had asked as a result for a letter from the hospital detailing what had happened. Um, But when they got that letter, it was just a few lines long. And they'll also then talk about it being an actual meeting six months later when they met with the hospital, that they learned that the organ that was affected in baby Lee's case was his brain. And it had been sent alongside clinical waste to a facility in Antwerp in Belgium and it was at that point they say that their world came crashing down I think that's the bit that really hits it had been sent a long time alongside clinical waste you just can't imagine how a parent feels on discovering that and I'm sure they've discussed that with you Aoife I mean, these, it's a very traumatic time for these parents. Um, you know, we will speak to experts in tonight's report who talk about the fact that when parents don't know in a symbolic way where part of their child is, it holds them in limbo and they can't move forward in any kind of meaningful way. Um, and without that lack of answers or closures, it is difficult for them to come to terms with what has happened. Will we hear any response from CUMH? in the programme as to why this happened? Well, the the hospital have issued us with statements, but we have also seen uh, internal hospital correspondence, um, which shows that mortuary staff at Cork University Hospital were aware in early 2020 that its burial plot for the internment of organs was full. They then subsequently made unsuccessful attempts to find alternative burial space, and they decided the cremation at the county's crematorium was not an option. And the result was that these multiple baby organs 
organs which had been released by the pathology department lay in storage in the hospital's morgue in some cases for up to several months. And then we came to a time where coronavirus um, arrived here. There was a potential for increased deaths and a decision appears to have been made to free up space in the mortuary and that resulted in these organs being sent abroad uh, for incineration, saying that they were acting out of absolute necessity and desperation. However, one of those internal emails that we've seen refers to organs being released by the pathology department for burial as far back as November 2019, which obviously was long before the COVID crisis hit. Now, for its part, CUH has apologised in that statement to us, saying that what occurred did so under very extenuating and unprecedented circumstances brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic, while CUMH has told us that it was not aware of the decision for, to send the perinatal organs for incineration. Nonetheless, an investigation has been commissioned by CUMH and it's expected that final review will be uh, with parents by late October or early November. And they, the parents, as you discovered, knew nothing about this until they got telephone calls. Yeah, all 18 families were contacted by the hospital uh, last May. and um, They had consented to, to organs being retained at post-mortem if it was necessary for further examination. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I, as I said earlier, they were very clear um, as to what the terms were that those yes. organs would be dealt with yes. um, if that was the case. And, and that correlated with an information booklet that was given to them by the hospital during the post-mortem consenting process. Okay, we can see the programme, uh, RTE Investigates, losing Lee at 9.35 tonight on RTE1. Aoife Hegarty, primetime reporter. Uh, thank you very much for being with, being with us on the Opinion Line this morning. Sorry to bring you such a distressing story uh, to start uh, this morning's programme. Uh, and no doubt we'll see the full programme tonight and we'll be able to consider it for ourselves. But shocking, a discovery that multiple baby organs were incinerated abroad without the consent or knowledge of bereaved parents. This didn't happen in the 80s. It didn't happen in the 90s. It happened in the last two years at COMH. 1850-715-996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Oldies and Irish on Cork's 96FM is the big Sunday show on your radio. Turn it up and take it easy with the best music mix for your Sunday morning. Welcome along to the programme. Lovely to be with you on a Sunday morning. Oldies and Irish with Derry O'Callaghan. Sundays, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. With Douglas Court Shopping Centre. They've got everything you need and more. Visit douglascourt.ie. Courts 96 FM. Actually, I'm thinking as I talk to Aoife Hegarty um, and make a mental note to watch primetime tonight, I'm thinking of a man who is no longer with us, but he was one of our regular Opinion Line family uh, a number of years ago, that was Donny. Uh, Donny was regularly on the programme talking about many things, but Donny had personal involvement in the organ retention scandal. And for people who think that, and would be young enough, that they mightn't realise that what we're about to learn tonight on the primetime programme is new. Well, organ retention is not new. 
uh, in Ireland. Uh, it goes back, in fact, there was the first story broke in about 1999. Scandal goes right back. Uh, there was a group called Parents for Justice was formed back in the late 90s and urged for an inquiry about something very similar now to what RTE will be discussing tonight on their primetime investigates. And I remember Donny, whose second name escapes me at the moment. Fergal, you'll remember it, throw it up on screen if you can off the top of your head there. But Donny was a man who was regularly on the programme talking about that and other things. Uh, but a number of years ago, Donny passed away quite suddenly. We were sad to lose him because he was a friend of us all. But I'm thinking of Donny this morning because the organ retention scandal and the keeping of organs by hospitals from infants who unfortunately passed away. That's not new. Not new at all. 1850-715-996. Come here, a couple of things happening. We will tell you what's going on with Nadim. Um, I can tell you yesterday we had uh, personal telephone calls from within the Taoiseach's office um, to ensure us or reassure us and reassure Nadim that uh, interest is being taken in his case. I'll fill you in a bit later. Ryanair are having a briefing at Cork Airport at 10 to let us know what will be happening after the airport reopens and right into next year. <laughs> We're going to find out, can we go out of Cork on our holidays next summer is probably the big question for a lot of us. Moraid is going and will check in with us as soon as that briefing is over or indeed as soon as we have anything at all from it. Come here. You know these weird polls that crop up from time to time? Uh, someone has now voted Irish stew to be ab- among the world's best dishes. Now, listen, you didn't need a poll to tell those of us who know it that. Good old-fashioned Irish stew is probably the only thing that's good about winter is Irish stew, big bowls of Irish stew. But it raises all sorts of questions too. Like Irish stew made the top 500. Black pudding is also in there in the top 500 dishes of the world. Barmbrack in the top 500 dishes of the world. But Irish stew is ranked 47th in the Travel Guide's Ultimate Eat List, the Lonely Planet Ultimate Eat List, Irish Stew. And you have to ask yourself one question, right? Which is it? Is it lamb or is it beef? And I've been having this discussion for as long as I'm eating stew, and that's a long time. Which is a proper Irish stew, right? Is it beef, or as my mother used to call it, brown stew? Or is it lamb? White stew. We had two types of stew in our house growing up. It was never referred to as Irish stew. It was just stew. And it was white stew or brown stew. White stew had lamb in it. I think my mum might occasionally have made it with mutton as well, because I love mutton. I know I, I know I love mutton stew. I'm not sure if my mother ever made it for me, but I, I know I love mutton stew. But lamb or mutton? was one form of stew. That was white stew. And then there was brown stew, which was made with beef. I only had brown stew the other day. Gorgeous. Which is it, though? Which is the real Irish stew? Is it lamb or is it beef? And and what goes into it? Like, what else goes into it besides the meat and the spuds? Right? And the bones, because you have to have yeah, the stock. There's carrots, obviously, go into it. Um, Fiona suggested this morning you put parsnips in it. The only place to put parsnips, my friends, is the bin. 
I have no time for parsnips in my life. They do not have any space in my world picture. I do not like parsnips. My wife and my mother before her have tried to make me eat parsnips over the years with various degrees of success. I hate them. But some people put them into it. A bit of onion is lovely in a white stew. Lovely bit of onion that just stews away nicely. And yeah. But answer the question for me. Irish stew. Brown with beef or white with lamb? I know there are probably far more important questions on the planet this morning. Like, will we be able to get any food for Christmas with the supply chain? No, no, stop, stop, stop. White stew or brown stew? Lamb, stroke mutton or beef? Which is it? Irish stew. And what veg do you put into it? Just, you know, by way of conversation. We will tell you later what the story is with with Nadim. The message that the man is getting, uh, and a very distinct and clear message yesterday was, please do not panic. Please do not panic, and please tell him not to panic. Uh, and do not be frightened. No one's going to turn up and deport him in the early hours of the morning, which I'm sure is what he was terrified of yesterday when he was speaking to me on the programme. 1850-715-996. Right, uh, enough of me and enough of silly surveys about Irish stew and what's in it and what's not. We have a dreadful shortage of consultants in hospitals. And again, CUH comes up in big broad lettering here. There are 25 vacant consultant posts at Cork University Hospital as of last May. And there are 5,800 children on waiting lists at CUH as of August. 31,300. In the mental health situation, mental health services, there were two consultant vacancies presently at CAMS. And we all know how slow CAMS is anyway. So why have we got such a massive problem with a shortage of consultants? There's 106,000 children on waiting lists nationally because of this shortage. One in five consultant jobs in the country, in the public health service, is now either vacant or covered by an agency. Uh, Okay, Martin Varley is Secretary General of the Irish Hospital Consultants Association. Martin, good morning. Good morning and thanks for having me on. And thanks for being with us. Those are very stark figures. One post in five either not filled or filled by an agency or a locum. Why? I think this goes back to a government policy decision in 2012 when the then government decided that new consultants would be paid 30% less than their former colleagues or their, their, their earlier appointees. And, of course, that created a situation where, number one, you were discriminating against new appointees, which is not a very nice thing to do especially if you're trying to recruit and fill posts with difficulty and competing with the world where there's a water shortage. So that that was the, the root cause of the problem. And in addition, of course, um, the terms and conditions being offered weren't attractive. And a lot of our highly trained specialists go abroad towards the end of their training. This has always happened historically in Ireland. And they bring back that expertise, which is extremely valuable because it's leading edge expertise and they use it for the rest of their careers in our hospitals in Cork and Dublin throughout the country. So that has been a, a, a model that worked very well up to 2012. Mm-hmm. And then you had this policy decision, which effectively 
ended up creating a major setback that we're still living with today. What, what, what's the, the starting is, salary for, for a consultant? And it's, prob- it's probably a very broad range, but take a standard consultant taking up a position for the first time. What's the starting pay in the public sector? It's it's in excess of 100,000, between 100 and 130, 140 or thereabouts. Um, but of course, internationally, um, these consultants, specialists, as we call them, until they're appointed as consultants, are generally um, earning twice or more than twice what they will earn here abroad in North America, Australia, etc. So we're trying to attract them back um, in that context. Um, and, of course, ad- adding a further 30% cut to the salary um, makes us less competitive. Wouldn't many of them also have a quite a lucrative private practice, Martin? It depends, uh, and it varies hugely. Uh, there are, of course, whole-time private practice consultants. There are public contract holders that have some private practice income, uh, but in fact, that can vary hugely and often is not as huge as people might think. Mm-hmm. And of course, costs go with running a private practice as well. Mm. Yes, and that must be covered for... So. What is the proposal? What would your association be be proposing? A pay rise? No, we're not proposing a pay rise. What we're proposing is remove that policy decision that's discriminatory in its nature. Uh, There's no other public service group uh, at the moment that has such a discriminatory cut imposed on it. Let's not forget uh, hospital consultants and doctors like all other public sector employees suffered the financial emergency cuts, uh, which amounted to 25%, in fact, uh, and additional uh, tax and other takes of 10 to 15%. So a lot of negative things were happening in terms mm. of net income impact, even without taking account of this. So we're not looking for a salary increase. We're looking for ending the discrimination. That's happened, I think, for most other groups where there were 10% reductions introduced, not 30%, I must add, and they have been reversed in a form uh, in response to what was seen as discrimination. So all we're looking for is the same. Uh, why are we looking for it? Well, obviously, we've got a problem uh, from the point we can't fill a fifth of our posts. Mm. And in fact, if patients are suffering, uh, it's one thing to have consultants suffering discriminatory salaries, but we can't fill our posts. And the waiting lists are getting bigger and bigger year after year. Uh, there are over 650,000 patients now on an outpatient uh, waiting list to be seen and assessed by a consultant. There's about 75,000 patients nationally waiting for in, inpatient and day case hospital procedures. So there are two major deficits in our hospitals. One is the staffing, and in particular consultants. We have 40% fewer consultants than the EU average. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's even allowing for the 700 posts that we know are not filled, being filled. So we're starting from a low base, and that's often the reason why we are struggling as hospitals to treat patients in time. The other big problem we have, and there are two deficits, as I said, we have 40% fewer acute hospital beds as well. So population has gone up in the last decade, significantly by about a half a million. But in fact, our acute hospital beds has declined somewhat, and now efforts have been made to increase them. So what we're saying is we need action on both fronts. We need to actually fill Mm -hmm. those consultant posts in the government discriminatory policy to allow us to do so. But also, very importantly, equip our hospitals, enable our consultants 
to treat patients in time. Nobody wants these long waiting lists. It's not good for patients. In fact, it's not good for the hospital because if you're delayed in getting your procedure, um, and in some cases up to a year or more, very often your hospital into stay is longer. Yeah. And of course, that's a false economy when you when you don't have sufficient number of beds. So from everybody's point of view, but in particular the patient's point of view, we shouldn't have these waiting lists. We should staff appropriately, so we're at the EU average, and certainly not have 700 vacant posts, permanent posts you can't fill on a permanent basis. And we should actually increase our bed capacity. Cork is a prime example of that. For years, there have been discussions about a new hospital in Cork. It's needed. Everybody agrees that. Now I'll just talk about a new elective hospital, and that talk has been going on for the last four years. Mm. But we still don't think have the site identified. So if I don't have the site identified after four years, how long is it going to take us to have the hospital built up and running so people can be treated and taken off waiting list? That's the big question and the big problem. We are coming to a budget in a matter of weeks, about two weeks, I think. Uh, what could come out of a health budget that might stop the the rot, as it were, Martin? Yeah, well, I think, obviously, the health budget increased significantly during the COVID because one had to uh, fund the COVID uh, necessities, uh, be it PPE, etc. And what we're saying is that there's extra funding in the budget this year, which is largely used for COVID, which, to a large degree, won't be required next year and the year after. We're saying maintain that in the health budget, redirect it, to actually increase our staffing, fill our posts and actually expand our hospital capacity. Do so on a clearly planned basis, but do it quickly. We we are of the view, while we have about 12,500, 13,000 acute hospital beds, we need to increase that over a period uh, up to 2030, but probably of the order of 6,000 acute hospital beds, so at 40% increase. We should really be aiming to increase by a thousand beds a year, mm-hmm. and we should be fast tracking those beds. Why? Because we know now with COVID, we can't have these multi-ward beds. We can't have people. But but if on, it were a thing, Martin, yeah. that uh, you were to restore the deficit in consultant pay, which we spoke about earlier, yeah, it, you know, it would put the cost up hugely of providing those extra beds. So well, money, doesn't, money fact, doesn't grow on trees for this kind of thing. I know, I appreciate the point you're making, but in fact, it's a false economy. We've looked at what's happening. Uh, the cost of employing an agency consultant can be double what you would pay a permanent hospital consultant. Yeah. Our agency medical bill since 2012 has gone up by about 150% from... Mm. 37 million to 95 well, million. We all, we all know why that happens and the unions have been explaining to us for years why that happens. It happens because there's no pension pay involved, there's no holiday pay involved. It's actually much cheaper to employ those people long term. Well, uh, the cost of a pension isn't double the salary by any stretch of the imagination. But back to, to, to put this in context, the cost of actually filling the consultant post, ending the discrimination is estimated at about 25 million. It's about 1% of the winter plan. It's it's a small percentage of the total spend, even on the winter plan. And if you take it as a percentage of the total health budget, it's minuscule. Now, that's because we tend to have a low number of consultants uh, in our hospitals. Even if we were at the EU uh, average, the total number wouldn't be that huge. Uh, we're, We're... 
approximately three and a half thousand consultancy in mental health and acute hospitals currently in terms of approved posts. Mm. But we know about 700 are not filled on a permanent basis. To actually write the problem, uh, to end the discrimination, is quite a small quantum in the overall scheme of acute hospital and mental health service costs. And if it is, as we think it is, a crucial factor in bringing down our waiting list, uh, we absolutely need to do it. One in five of our posts not filled on a, on a, on a permanent basis is actually significant uh, when you think of trying to get through uh, long waiting lists mm-hmm. of the order of 650,000. 650, we, we see about 3.5 million patients and outpatients per year. 650 is about a sixth of that. We've mm-hmm. about a fifth of our consultant posts which aren't filled on a permanent do, basis. Do the maths, as, as you say. As you can see, the maths is actually starting to line up. Some of the indicators are all driving us in one direction. We need to fix the root cause problems, fill the posts. Permanent consultants will always be more effective than somebody who's in a temporary post or where you've got gaps or where you've got vacancies. So that's the problem as far as we can see it. And it's in the interest of patients. It's the interest of all the staff working in the hospital because where you've got gaps, everybody then is struggling. And back to my main point, it's giving rise to a longer and longer waiting list. That's that's the key issue we want the government to address in the uh, in okay. budget. And staffing is a crucial part of it. And the infrastructure in the hospitals, beds, theatres, etc., also are important. All right. Thank you very much for that. That's Martin Valley, General Secretary of the Irish Hospital Consultants Association. The average pay of a hospital consultant starting uh, around 100, maybe 110,000. Now they work up. They work up and the top end of the consultants who are there for quite a while are earning a handsome wedge. But his argument is they changed all this a few years ago. Entry level for consultants now is much lower than it used to be and he reckons that is discrimination. And until you change that back, they just won't come. They just won't bring their expertise here and we'll continue to have vacancies. 1850 Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Let me show you what it's all about. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. Afternoons in Cork sound better here. I've got the big tunes from all your favourite artists. Hey, it's me, Justin Bieber. Hi, this is Billie Eilish. What's happening everybody it's Tom Gwennon I'm always good for a prize oh thank you so much that's brilliant thanks a million and big name stars on the show for a chat Joel Curry personally Ireland is my favourite place to play you guys know it's like a second home to me and I miss it so much in the afternoon in Cork in the car at work at home make sure you're with me Simon Murdoch, midday to 4pm on Cork's 96FM. You're discussing stew like there was no tomorrow. Uh, is it lamb or is it beef? I want to know by 12 o'clock. You might, if someone said to you, make an Irish stew, put an Irish stew together there for me for the dinner this evening. Would you put lamb in it or beef in it? Or mutton? Put lamb or beef for an Irish stew. Note I say Irish stew. Which is it, lamb or beef? Oh eight three three ninety six ninety six ninety six. Couple of WhatsApp voices messages coming in as well. On it, I'll get to them in a while. Interesting thing happened in Germany 
at the weekend. And we know there was an election and we know that Angela Merkel stepped down and resigned from politics and retired and all that. And that the, her party uh, lost the election at the end of that. Did they? I, to, to be honest, I wasn't following it all that closely. But besides all that, besides all that, in Berlin, there was a referendum. Now, not a binding referendum, but a referendum, kind of a local referendum, when they voted to expropriate landlords. Now, that may sound like a biological procedure, but it's not. Right? They voted to expropriate landlords, which effectively is take property off of owners of huge amounts of property and use it for public use. Stephen Dorgan uh, is from Cork, but living in Berlin for the bones of 30 years, Stephen. Good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good. Now, expropri- I'll start off by saying I'm a beef man. <laughs> Good man. <laughs> it is very warm, all right, on a cold winter's night is a, be- is a beef stew. The, the, so the idea that this, is this that the, the state or the city hall of Berlin would literally just take property from big landlords? Um, well, in a nutshell, you could say yes, but it's a little, slightly bit more complicated. Um, Berlin is one of the 16 federal states. It's a city-state um, with its own local government. And the referendum was just in Berlin, and the results were overwhelming. It was 50, 56% of the voters were in favour, 39% opposed, which means that the government, the incoming state government, will be forced to bring into law the wishes of the of the voters. Mm-hmm. Um, it affects the large concerns, those who possess more than 3,000 housing units. Mm. Now, you have two big um, companies the there. In Berlin, market is... There's quite a lot. Yeah. Um, Deutsche Wohnen is probably the most... Well, yeah, you've you've two companies. Sorry, am I getting through? There's a slight delay on the line. Just just hold with me a second. So you've Deutsche Wohnen and sure. you have Vonovia, two very big companies. And between them, am I right? Do, do they own like t- tens of thousands of apartments between them? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of investors. And the referendum. One of the main results will be that they will not be allowed to go on the stock market and go as a private concern. That would drive uh, rental prices way up. So that's now been stopped. There was an attempt to cap uh, rents in the city and that failed in the last two years. So this was the next option that was open to tenants' rights associations and to the ordinary citizens. So does Berlin have a, a major housing crisis? Does Germany in general have a major housing crisis, Stephen? Yeah, especially when you consider that only 51% of homes are privately owned. All the rest are rented. Um, The rule of thumb used to be that you pay one third of your income on accommodation. And that's gone up in some areas to almost 60%. So the knock-on effect is huge. And would you have, I mean, obviously you keep in touch with the news from home. Uh, You know the, the state of affairs we have here in housing, which is just a crisis of all time. Is it that bad in Germany? Um, It's not quite that bad. And the one huge advantage here is that tenants have very, very strong rights. Um, I had to experience firsthand myself when the house I had an apartment in was sold, uh, which we all had to move out, but we got a year's notice 
and <clears throat> slight compensation for the move as well. Mm-hmm. But you're into a market which means that the, the rent you paid would be just illusory to afford the same again. Yeah, yeah. and are rents high in comparison to home? Uh, relatively, as I said, it used to be, um, I suppose you could say with the apartments, you'd be talking about between 12, 15 euros per square meter. Right. So it depends on the size of the apartment, obviously. Um, what these big concerns are doing now are buying up lots of properties and then uh, forcing that they have to modernize them, which drives the rents up and they can justify that. Right. So legally, they were allowed to do it, and this is an attempt now to to, to stop it going any further. Yeah. If the state manages to buy a large amount of properties, compulsory, then the hope is that they would get that money back for the state and for the taxpayers through the rents, which would be a bit more payable, right. and in some cases subsidised in social housing. Now, the big companies would get quite well compensated for this, I take it, but what if they refuse? <sighs> Well, the thing is, they have been refusing. There have been attempts made, but they, they're they going to be overwhelmed simply by, by, by citizen power, if you yeah. like. Uh, for the last election, for instance, there was a survey done um, two weeks ago asking people in Berlin what were their motivations for voting. And rental accommodation <clears throat> was the reason given by 32% of the people. Mm. And environment and climate was 13% education 10%. So it shows how much of an issue it is that the politicians won't have much of a choice, but to follow through legally, and if that becomes legally binding, then the large concerns won't have any options. Okay. All right. Listen, thank you very much for being with us this morning from Berlin. Stephen Dorgan is from Corporate Living out there now for the bones of 30 years. So what they've done, thank you Stephen, what they've done is they've passed a local referendum that says the big two two huge companies there that own like something like half a million apartments between them. It's a giant company that the state would literally buy half of those, buy them back and rent them out for public. Bit of a CPO job that you'd make it a local example here. You have some guy here with 300 apartments, some big landlord here with 300 apartments, owns half an apartment building. And the city hall comes in and says, right, we're buying 150. You've no choice. There's your money. They're public apartments now. That's called expropriation. That story uh, on RTE Primetime Investigates is tonight at 9.35. But I mentioned afterwards, after talking to Aoife Hegarty, the reporter, that I remembered the organ retention uh, scandal. And, And a quick Google will find you dozens of articles uh, about what happened back in the 90s and maybe even earlier than that. Uh, and and Kelly, um, unfortunately, I think you, you got caught up in it too. Good morning to you. I'm just absolutely sick of my stomach, but the first person that came into my mind when I heard it this morning was Joni. Yeah. Lord of mercy in him. He fought so hard, so hard when all this broke all those years ago. And I'm thinking of him this morning. Yeah, unfortunately, our little boy was born um, 32 years ago and, you know, you get over, you don't get over, but, you know, you try and live your life after the death. And it was, um, I'll always remember, it was about the day before Christmas Eve, we were at home and all the Christmas cards were being posted in the door and my husband happened to be off work that day and he went out to get the Christmas cards and, you know, open up the Christmas cards and in amongst the Christmas cards was a letter to say, we're sorry to inform you, but your son's organs were retained. 
Now, we were in absolute shock because when he died, we did consent to a post-mortem because Alan had a very, very rare disorder, extremely mm-hmm. rare. And we nobody knew actually at he was born that there was a problem. And we wanted answers. In actual fact, we had to try for many years to get answers for his condition. But we did, of course, uh, say, yes, of course, we, we can do the post-mortem because we need to get answers. But the one thing I will always remember saying to them, PJ, is will Alan come back to us the same way as he goes in chief for post-mortem? Mm-hmm. And we were assured that he would. But unfortunately, he didn't. And we didn't know for years later. Now, that letter went on then to ask us to come to a meeting in CUH in the January. I can remember going out, you know, we were very young still at the time, you know, you know, that's 15 odd years ago, whatever, and we didn't know what was ahead of us. And we went out and sure they were all there in their suits, you know, in the boardroom and it was quite blunt. They said, yes, we retained his brain. And my husband at the time asked them, what did you do with it? And he was told quite bluntly, we incinerated it. And the only thing my husband said to them on the day was, you incinerate rubbish. You don't incinerate someone's body parts. Now, I suppose, PJ, I won't say we were lucky. You know, I went through all this scandal at the time and sure, we got nowhere. But there was people actually found out years later that the organs were still in formula inside in jars, inside yes. in labs. Yes. Like our story was horrific, but we went to many a meeting and some of the stories was like something out of a horror film. I wouldn't even repeat on air. Nor would I. I I wouldn't also, Kelly, would not repeat things that Donny, God be good to him, told me. No. You know, terrible, terrible. And here's the thing, when when I saw the promo for the RTE programme, do you know what went through my mind? Mm -hmm. Not again. That's a, PJ, I was with Lauren this morning. She turned on her Lexus. She turned you on every single morning. And it came on. And I, I actually, I sure she said, why is mum running out for me this morning? I actually, I actually felt physically sick because I felt these parents now, here we are all these years later, they're going to go through the horror that we went through. And, and still, it still goes through my mind. Like, you know, you're not even offered counselling or or anything, how how dare they, like, how dare they do that to, to parents? It, it's so hard when you lose a child because you never expect to bury your, your child before you. And then, you know, you try and get on with life as best you can. And then out of the blue, to be told this, this horror, and it's a horror story because it shouldn't have happened. This is a question that I know because we know each other, Kelly. I know I can ask you, and you know yeah. I'm not asking this to be to be nasty. Would it have been easier if they hadn't told you? A hundred percent. We had no Christmas that year. We still had three other children that we had to make Christmas for. We, it, it was like, it was like being told again that Alan had died. It was, it was just reliving it. But then you're, you're thinking to yourself, and I still, to this day, and actually, PJ, it was only last week I was cleaning out our wardrobes in our bedroom and his file with everything about him came up and mm-hmm. all the organ retention, I kept all the articles and everything. And like you still, to this day now, I still think to myself, have we got the full truth? Was it only his brain that they took? 
But and I mean, I couldn't even understand at the time, Peter, when they told us why. And then, uh, okay, people. Some people said to me, but you know what? They probably kept it for research. Okay, that's fine. But tell the parents if they're doing that, like to be told twenty odd years after he died that oh, we took his brain by the way, yeah. and then we decided to incinerate it. Yeah. They didn't even give us, afford us the, the, the opportunity or to, to get it back and to bury it with, with him. No, it's, it, I, I'm, I'm just sitting here listening to you because I don't have words. I, 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 I can't get over it. I, I tell you now this morning, it's after really, it's after knocking me back, back to that Christmas week when we opened that letter. I feel so, so sorry for these parents because you cannot describe to anybody how they feel. You have to be in that situation. It is horrific. Absolutely Will you horrific. watch the programme, Kelly? I will. I will watch it, I will, PJ. I will watch it. Yeah. Well, tis Donny I'm thinking of today. Yeah. He put his life and soul into getting answers for his daughter and he went to his grave still so he sad. Did. He did, and it was my first thought this morning when I when I and mine and mine PJ as well, and I I he was the for the minute the minute I heard it, I thought of Donny because he fought such a battle. Kelly, thank you very much for being with us. It's a it's 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 horrible. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, And that was my first thoughts when I saw the promo for the program. Not again, not again. Thanks, Kelly, and uh, yeah, we we remember Donny with affection because he was a great character but with sympathy for, for what he went through and what he put himself through and what he, to the last breath in his body, as Kelly said, he fought for justice for, for his daughter. And unfortunately, he didn't get it. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie the lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Do you know, it's as good as the old argument, which is more... Uh, enjoyable. A pint of Beamish or a pint of Murphy's. The old Cork argument. Are you a Beamish man or a Murphy's man? Well, it comes to Irish stew. Are you a lamb or beef? People nailing their colours to the mast here. Bernard says the real Irish stew was made out of lamb, potatoes and carrots and onions and parsley. And well-off people used to put Guinness in it. Oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, dear, no. Couldn't do that, no. However, lamb, potatoes, carrots, onions and parsley... And people just put thyme in it too. Although I don't like parsley or thyme in a stew because it kills off the taste of the vegetables, I think. Mutton stew is the original, says Pat, then lamb. Uh, Beef stew is an American dish. It was also a skirts and kidney stew, which I grew up on. This was made from pork. A good nori stew is a rabbit stew. I love rabbit stew. And it's almost kind of not politically correct to say you like... I love rabbit stew. Absolutely. If I I had a pet rabbit, I think I'd probably call him stew. Uh, Lamb for an Irish stew with With carrots, onions, stock and spuds, says Bear. 
lamb for Irish stew, carrots, parsnips, white turnips, onions, and pearl barley, says Mary. Uh, your mother put parsnip in the white lamb stew and probably took it out before she gave you your dinner. Possibly. I don't mind that. Onions, carrots, celery, potatoes, and fresh thyme. Keep your celery. Hate celery. What? Celery is a pointless veg. There is no point in the world to celery. Celery doesn't actually have any purpose in life. None. Good morning, says Pierre. It's lamb in Irish stew. Beef all day, says Paul. Don't know about PJ, but we wouldn't be able to afford lamb. So stewing beef all day long and simmer it for two hours. Oh, I love stewing beef. Oh God, it's lovely, yeah. Uh, just making stew with beef. I'll put a packet of soup into it now, says this one. And Roisin says mutton, potato, onion, carrots, and tor- Oh, they've out the turnip, Roisin. And sometimes a dumpling. Oh God, no. Oh God, no, you'd weigh about three stone heavier after the dumpling. Lamb, says Daniel. Beef, says Paula. And there, Carol, hi Carol, Carol Rice. And my mama's cooking stew as we speak. We're a brown stew family all the way. Carrots, celery, peppers, mushrooms, parsnips, onions, courgettes, anything you can find. Crikey, have you got a pot big enough? And it does warm the bones on the damp days. Michael says, my wife has asked me to inform you while she likes parsnips, they're never put in the stew. Beef, says Brenda, and Sarah says skirts and kidneys. I had it once and not 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 having it again. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. Oh what yes, this was another this came in on, on WhatsApp voicemail. PJ now, I know you're all about Ireland and all things car, but you've forgotten one thing about the necessity and the nutritious feeding of winter, and that's good old coddle. You can't beat a pot of coddle. That and stew are the two things I love making above most of my house. You can get the accent too. He'd be a good coddle heading him, alright, with Paul. 1850 We're also inundated with comments about the upcoming programme tonight on RT Investigates, and it's, it's hard to have fun with a topic like stew and have such serious comments coming in as well. So what I'll do is I'll come back to them a little bit later on. We have to try and balance the two on the programme, but but I'll come back to them because a lot of people are very upset by the programme that they're about to hear or to see on RTE tonight. 1850-715-996. Many of us got into a lower and slower pace of life during lockdown. You know, I mean, even if you were in and out to work like we were, there was no traffic there was no running around. There was no racing. If you needed to go somewhere, you just went. There was no problem with traffic jams. Like, if you needed to be somewhere for 9 o'clock, you could leave at 20 to 9, and there was no rush, and there was no sitting fuming, wondering where that Egypt was going with the... Yeah, you know, none of that. And you had time to go for a walk. That's to do when you go for a walk and enjoy nature and... Listen to the birds singing and look at the sun and look at the trees and just enjoy it. And the sea, when you could get to it outside your 5K, when you could get to it. You know, but, but now we seem to be getting back faster towards full throttle. Um, life is opening up again. Town is opening up again. 22nd of October, the foot will be off the accelerator and we're away and rocking on. And people are coming back into their offices and all of that. And the pace of life looks like it'll go back to where it was or pretty close to it. Do, sh- should it ever go back to that is a question in itself. But, but what happens to your sense of self when you come back? Like, I think we had lots of time to spend with ourselves 
during the last 20 months or so. Lots of time spent on our own, lots of time spent with those closest to us, lots of time spent doing the most simple of things. As I used to say here every Friday when we close up for the weekend, take joy from simple things. We got more in touch with ourselves. So when we go back to full throttle or close to full throttle, could you lose that sense of self? And there's a group called Perspectives Ireland. They're a group of psychologists and they're, they're encouraging people to consider how they can invest in their sense of self and take the positive lessons of the last 18 months or so and use them going forward. Dr. Yvonne Barnes-Holmes joins me to discuss this. Yvonne, good morning. Good morning, PJ. There is a belief, or there was a belief, that a self, self, selfishness and self-centeredness was always a bad thing. But I think one thing we've learned of late is there's a huge difference between self-care and selfishness. Yes, that's absolutely true. That's something we hear all the time from uh, people who who come to perspectives in various ways. It's just trying to emphasize that, you know, investing in yourself does not make you selfish. I mean, if, you know, what you've really got to do, and the verb invest says it all, you've really got to do exactly like you said in your introduction. You have a right and an entitlement to be able to really focus on what matters to you. That doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong or you should feel guilty and selfish. But very many people do. And that's just a message that we have to try to get across all the time. There's nothing wrong or bad or selfish or against other people just by you making time and space for the things that matter to you, just like you make in time and space for the things that matter to other people. Because during lockdown, we had a lot of extra time on our hands and extra space, even if it was only the space within our own four walls, to, to, to look after ourselves. It almost became a duty to mind ourselves because of the mental pressures of the pandemic. But now that we're going back to normal, you could forget that. So what did we learn in the last 20 months or what were we doing that we need to hold on to? I think, as you said in your intro, I think when life slowed down, it gave us an opportunity to sort of prioritize properly and not be dragged around and rushing around. And I think, like you said, you're absolutely right. Um, you realize, well, I'll just go for a walk. Gosh, that was actually really nice. It's It allows you to really move away from sweating the small stuff that doesn't matter and really focus on the small stuff that does matter most to you. And as we head back into the rat race, it's just really important to sort of stand up for yourself and say, listen, I actually felt like I was really thriving on that aspect of lockdown. How come I can't just sort of get that back into my schedule? I mean, it is tight. It is faster and more difficult, but you really can make changes and take control, even if it's only over the small things and they will replenish you in a very significant way if you do that. Mm. You can focus on yourself. I think we all should focus on ourselves, even if it's only for five minutes in the morning as, you, as you're getting ready for the day. Focus on yourself and, and look at you and accept the fact that you are enough as you are. Yeah, that's a really important point. And that is something people struggle with. I mean, there are two sides to that coin. One is if there are things about you that you really do want to change, like you've got aspirations and hopes, sit down, take one of them 
and begin to focus on what you might do if that was a sort of a goal. So that's one side of it. And the other side of it is really about giving up trying to change things that don't need to be changed. And that's about really in some ways just accepting who you are. It's not all bad. It's not all broken. There are many things about you that are positive. And if you invest in them and you sort of put that foot forward, you'll find that there's just a lot more happiness in there. So it's about not trying to change the wrong things and about really giving yourself the energy to change the things that do matter to you. So it's change on one side that's manageable and it's acceptance on the other side. And that really is a very workable combination. We all had times in the in the pandemic where we were struggling with the various, you know, implications for our lives. And one of the best bits of advice a friend gave me was, try not to rely for your happiness on the things you cannot control. That is just your friend gave you very, very good advice because no matter how much energy you invest in them, you'll never win that race. It's not there to be controlled. What you're better trying to do is get your trainers on and win a race that can be controlled and that really will make a difference to you. If you can't control it, in many ways, it mightn't matter that much anyway. The things that you can control and the things that you invest in and that you want to change and that really mean something to you, they will actually pay off an awful lot more. So it's about, if you have limited or less energy, it's about just putting that in the right place that's going to give you the biggest payback. Talk about not sweating the small stuff. We would all say that to ourselves a hundred times a day. You could engrave it on your forehead so that when you pass the, pass the mirror, it's there every time. Don't sweat the small stuff. Yet we still do it, don't we? Why are we driven that way? We're very much driven toward detail because detail gives you a sense of, well, if it's just those details, that gives me something that I control. But details don't give you control at all. I mean, a thing we say to people all the time about the small stuff is remember that two weeks or one month from now, you won't even remember those details. You won't even remember that thing and you won't remember the fact that you sweated all that sweat over it. So it really is a loss of your investment in your time and energy. And the thing is, if you're sweating the small stuff, you've less time and energy for the things that really do matter, the other small stuff that that you really will remember. So we often say to people, try to think about which one you'll remember. And Mm. the small stuff that you're sweating over tomorrow or next week or next month, next year, you won't even remember all that investment you put into it. Mm. So it's really not worth doing. Is it a valuable practice if you have stuff on your mind, uh, Yvonne, to sit down with a piece of paper with two columns, A and B, A, the stuff over which you have control and B, the stuff that you don't? It really is. It's an absolutely great idea. It sounds very trite and simplistic, but a pen and a piece of paper are a really magical set of tools for you, not just to open up a little bit of space in your thinking. It just sort of distances and puts it out there right in front of you. And you can see more clearly just the minute it's out of your head. And it allows you to put one column against the other. And you will be really drawn to the column that matters most. You'll be, you'll really see in front of you. Actually, I would prefer to do that and focus on that over that. And like I have invested a lot of time and that hasn't gotten me anywhere. So one column versus the other, just the fact that you sort of put them against each other really allows you to think this is where I'm going to go and this is where I'm not going to go. So it really is simple advice. It takes you two minutes. It is so, so worth doing. Even if it was only a list of three on each side, 
you say, well, let's focus on these things we can do. And, you know, we either can't do them at all or we don't have to do them today, so they're on the other side. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we often say to, to clients and people here visit our services, and it's a really simple lesson. If it isn't a problem today, it isn't a problem. So if your list only contains three things, it, you know, you'll be able to work through it. But if you make a list that contains 25 things, by the time you get halfway down the list, you're going to be absolutely exhausted. You'll be worried you're about going the to procrastinate. list. <laughs> exactly. You'll start becoming focused and your energy will just absolutely fall through the page. So yeah. make a list for today and it'll only contain a few things. And then tomorrow, make a list for tomorrow. Yeah. Lastly, every one of us, I think anyway, Maybe every one of us is a bit of a broad statement, but forgive me. We all found something in the course of the difficult days of the pandemic that we either A, had never done before, or B, had never given the time to. A simple thing like, for me, and this is purely personal, when my day's work was done, sitting in the back garden with a book and some music and a coffee, even for 40 minutes, and... I, I vowed that even no matter how busy we get again, I'm never letting that go. Things to hold on to, like baking with the kids, a walk by the sea, a, you know, don't let them go. Find time for them. And that's absolutely true. And I was just sort of tickled by the conversation about the stew before I came on. Make, plan to make a nice stew, plan to make a nice dinner you know, have a takeaway together. I mean, there really are simple things, but they will pay you back a hundredfold. I mean, if you're awake for 12 or 15 hours a day, surely you can give yourself 30 minutes. Surely as a family or people you live with, you can spend 40 minutes or one hour together. So I know people's lives are very busy, but it's about prioritizing and investing and surely you're worth 30 minutes a day. All right. Yvonne, pleasure to speak with you on the Opinion Line. Dr. Yvonne Barnes-Holmes, uh, and a member of uh, Perspectives Ireland. They have an event coming up as well at uh, Carton House in late October. It's a wellness retreat. I'm, I'm assuming it's a paid event, but if you want to find out more, perspectivesireland.ie. And all that advice that we give ourselves, we'll probably all have forgotten in a couple of weeks, but let's hope not. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. I have got your Tuesday tunes sorted. Everything Cork, latest news and all those big trending stories in the afternoon. I'll bring it to you. So come on, join me from 12 on Cork's 96FM. Still stuff coming in about Stu. I think Lamb is winning. Still a few wild votes coming in for skirts and kidneys, but I think Lamb or Mutton is winning. Uh, PJ and Irish stew with lamb and veg, but I also like a bit of ginger. Great taste, and my friends love it. That's Chris listening to us in London. Thanks, Chris. 1850 All this talk about a bank holiday and and what day it might be on and when we might get it, whether it be a bank holiday or a public holiday, to say thanks to everyone for their... For their um, efforts during the pandemic. We've had a long message on it, which I'll get to in a wee while. Are we good to go on, Eugene? Just let me know on my ear there, uh, Fiona, where we're going next. 
yeah, we'll do this. You had this message in about the bank holiday that we're supposed to be rewarded with, and they're discussing at the moment when it might be. Some are saying do it in November. Some say do it in February. Personally, I would have said September because it breaks that long gap between the August bank holiday and, and Halloween or the jazz. Having it mid-September would, would break the, it, it up nicely. With reference to this bank holiday that frontline workers are supposed to be getting, one, the word bank holiday isn't a public holiday. It only covers a section of workers. Public holiday means day off for everyone. I am assuming it'll be a public holiday. Uh, maybe I'm thick, but I am assuming it'll be a public holiday. Two, what about all the people who worked in offices in poor conditions where they were penalised by their employers and government for working. The employer got the wage supplement scheme, the workers were paid their net wage as their gross wage. This means not only did their employers make high profits, but their employees were down money. And do we not get recognised like all shop assistants and everyone else who worked right through the pandemic? Well, my understanding, and we can check this with anyone, it's a public holiday. They call it a bank holiday, but it's going to be a public holiday, a day like we'll all be off like, for example, Stevens' day this year falls on a Sunday. Monday is a public holiday. Patrick's day is a public holiday. It's also a national holiday, of course. I think they're talking about a public holiday for everybody. Whether it be a one-off or a permanent one, that's another question. 1850-715-996. Now, if you keep an eye on news in the UK, you will know that there's a massive, massive supply chain crisis over there. A massive haulage crisis. There's 100,000 drivers short. Between 90 and 100,000 drivers short in the UK, leading to massive problems like petrol stations closed and we're starting to see some empty shelves in supermarkets over there it's a big problem and Boris is looking at calling in the army also wants to give out 5,000 special visas for EU based drivers to come in on special permits for the the Christmas period and it's a kind of a combination it's a good piece in in the, the papers about it, the examiner had a piece at the weekend, it's a combination of a shortage of lorry drivers the impact of COVID, complications from Brexit, and the one we'd forgotten, I certainly had, the, the Suez Canal crisis when that huge ever given got rammed in the canal. Big question on people's minds, of course, is could it happen here? Eugene Drennan is president of the Irish Road Haulage Association. Eugene, there's a straightforward question to start. Could it happen here? Good morning. Good morning to you, PJ. Could I address something from your last item just before I go into that Indeed. one about the public holiday and acknowledgement of people who worked? Nobody worked more than truck drivers and hauliers. When the chips went down in 2020 and Italy was in flames, we are the people who had to go there. We weren't working just here. We had to go to these places. And some of them were the red flag zones and we had to coax people and cajole them and see could we get the services going for the products of West Cork anything to do with fish or uh, shellfish for all our meat exports there's very important and we're not looking for any extra payment but in the list of essentiality it would be nice if we were mentioned and the truck drivers and the hauliers were acknowledged just mm-hmm. that we did it now, we don't need you know we weren't front line here in charge of the patients they're the only people who should get paid the people who are in the wards, good luck to them. Other than that, everybody was doing their job that was working. And as regards the um, extra money or a public holiday for a reward, the people who are in um, services, industries of any sort, whether it's catering, 
uh, hotels, publicans, all have been badly hit, and likewise hauliers. They'll have to pay for that holiday. Nobody else. And there's no other industries that have been as ravished and have had as tough a time and hard times as anybody who's in the service industry without mm. workers now and not able to get them. So it will want to be done very carefully, yeah. you know, but just to acknowledge all years before we start. Indeed, as indeed. regards the current, yeah, sorry, could, uh, to address your question. The, the, the simple question, could it happen here? That, I mean, the, the, looking at the reports from the UK where they now have thousands of garages with no petrol and a lot of empty shelves in supermarkets, something like 100,000 drivers short in the system, thinking about calling in the army. Eugene, could that happen here? No, I don't think so. Not quite as bad as the UK. Now, the just-in-time method method and the really quick delivery that we've been used to in times of past pre-COVID and pre-Brexit, that's gone out the window. We will not see that level of of distribution delivery. That is that if you click, you purchase something online or you just pick up the phone to somebody who's giving a service to you now, uh, it's unlikely you'll get it by this afternoon or by tomorrow. It may be the, the day after. And people, any sort of supply line of goods that's needed, whether you need them for manufacturing, whether you need them for farming, for inputs, whether you need them for resale of foodstuff, whether it's uh, industrial, whatever it is. The rule of thumb now is have a stock of your essential in. Uh, Depending on it coming quickly or just overnight or by tomorrow, that's gone by the wayside. Mm. And though the advice of accountants for years past was you don't need to stock and it costs you money if it's on the shelf, that's over. If you want to have your customer, you want to have your supply line, you want to be sure of your goods, have a little bit of them on the shelf. But as regards the UK and particularly the petrol and fuel crisis, uh, for the most part, the drivers and, on fuel delivery here are on the top end of the market and always have had been in the better of the wage line service. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.
Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Uh, Elizabeth is specialized and um, hazardous chemical transport, so it took a specialized driver. And they are tied, either tied into contract or they're Irish indigenous people who live here or they're happy that they have a good job. And, you know, the, the rates of pay in, in Hollage has improved and increased in recent times. I don't see as bad a difficulty here. Howsoever, you know, to help out if you if you uh, with your supply man who brings you your your household fuel and your winter coziness and a bit of heat to your home, order in time. Have your tank full carefully. People have the banks tell me and the papers I read tell me that there is money in personal accounts after the pandemic. People have a few bob, so stock your stuff in time. Mm. Not, not everybody, Eugene, but a few would. Yeah. Not everybody, but for the most part. But if you can, do it in time rather than later and be sure. Likewise for Christmas, you know, um, there may be some very special, either small or big, that need something special. I would have it in in time because the supply lines are changed. But to go back to your question, I always answer questions, DJ. I don't see it getting as bad as the UK, but we may lose somewhat of a percentage of drivers to the UK and we're already short of drivers, very badly short of drivers here and any other um, thing that would take drivers away from here would cause have a knock-on effect that we, we mightn't be getting to the delivery quite as quick as we used to and there may be a little bit of a wait. There's a global shortage of drivers, isn't there? I mean, Poland... And yeah, Germany. yeah, yeah. Have, have yes, indeed. Um, South Africa, you know, uh, South African people are really on the move. It's one of the countries that you can get into this country under permit, uh, that their license is acceptable for exchange. And they've virtually become a global commodity because they're accepted in the, Uni- in the United States as well yeah. and accepted in quite a lot of the big countries. And they can pick and choose where they're going now to a degree. Yeah. You know, and we have it. We, we, we have it. Let's, let's face it. A lot of people are putting all this down to Brexit, but I think that's a short-sighted view. This is a global problem, yeah. the start of a global oh, it's far problem. Bigger. Yeah. Yes. Yes, and in East Levelling, like, there are a lot of people who come here. There's a lot of people looking for a job in this type of business as well. It's just that we've gone so uh, over-regulated and too much red tape by far. And in Ireland, the exchange of licence and getting people here under permit it, it's a long, slow process now, and the COVID hasn't helped it because people are working remate, remotely. The output or the throughput of, of these um, uh, permits and permissions has gone very slow, and in, in some cases up to eight months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is a double uh, problem. Um, from all of the items you said, the Seuss Canal going skew is, was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Explain because there's 40,000... Okay, so for some people, okay... And, okay, I'm going to put this in very simple terms. A fellow looks up out of his pint and says, come here, hang on a while now. There was a boat stuck in a canal for a week, yes. and you're telling me yes. that's holding it all up. Sure, that was months ago. No, it triggered it. 
It okay. triggered it uh, because it was about to happen, really. Anyway, it was hovering because of COVID. You must remember with COVID, we think of COVID here, how we got through ourselves and how we just, you know, tipped along. But we got by and we weren't really short of anything. That is not the same for the rest of the world. There are major factories down in production, major factories closed down for two, three, four weeks at a time across the board of all sorts of production of machinery. And then Southeast Asia is ravaged. You take any of the Asian countries who would be feeding people into the factories of maybe China or Korea. The countries like uh, the poor people, God help them, of Indonesia, Bali, Bali, Thailand, Vietnam, they were all fully dependent on tourism. And that switch turned off overnight. Yeah. You know, and they had nothing to do and they're caught at home and not enough. And then the pandemic hitting these factories that they were closed. So that started, the, you know, the supply line had started to get pear-shaped anyway because of COVID, the knock-on of COVID. Right. And then this ship went aground. And if you remember the pictures of the ship, like, it oh, yeah. was the size of the city of Cork nearly above in a boat. There was 40,000 containers that were built out and out and out. It'd be like one of these seaside holiday big, villages. Bigger, bigger, than, bigger than Parky Cueve, to give some context of it. So that, those, those <laughs> well, two... Well, you can work park with Parky yeah. Cueve, I'd say, yeah. on so, that one, yeah. So you had that and you had, and you had COVID and then Brexit. Is it as simple to yes. blame all this on Brexit? Well, it's another trigger mechanism, and we we are so reliant. We're such a big market with the UK, and we're so reliant on the land bridge and how we communicate through, in and out and up through um, the UK. And very quickly, while we were still picking the steps of, if you recall, the dithering that went on in 2019, where they're going the start of 19, where they're going by June, where they're going in July, where they're going in next year. And that led to a, a, a vacancy and a void in the thinking and in the preparedness and in being prepared. And then what you had prepared, you know, didn't answer the bill on the date or different things came into play. And then suddenly we were in it. Mm. And sort of we were 75% ready, but we still had to pick our way through it. And because of the inter-business um, exchanges between Ireland and UK, the massiveness, it's a huge trade. It used to be a huge trade. Yeah. And we were very fortunate in Ireland that we got direct ferries, more direct ferries. We encouraged and we in the Irish Road Holders Association were to the forefront of trying to get extra ferries, direct ferries to Europe into Ireland. Mm -hmm. And were we so, so lucky because that has kept our supply chain mm -hmm. running. Uh, our supply chain inward for all sorts of things we import here and we import quite a lot. But equally as important, the supply chain, the, the definite of the timeline to be able to let our exports go out at a dedicated time. Though it may be later, a little bit later than it was heretofore, at least the surety of delivery and the surety of the timeline was very, very important, PJ. And we were looking at that. Yeah. The simple question, I think, for my listeners as we wrap up, Eugene, and the reasons are the reasons, yes. and I guess you can look at this, that, and the other. Simple question for, for my listeners. Shelves. I was in my local Tesco last night to pick up a few bits, and I have to say for, for a Monday night, the shelves were, were quite bare in certain parts of yes. the store. Yes. Fresh fruit, fresh veg. Very hard. I've been noticing yes. a shortage of fresh fruit in Tesco the last couple of weeks, actually, let alone the last couple of days. And I know the yes. shops, I'm sure, are affected. But what people will ask this morning, Eugene, when, is this going to affect my weekly shop? Oh, for sure. You know, everything has got more expensive. May, for many other factors outside of all that, mainly fuel. You know, once fuel goes through the roof, like everything, the cost of everything goes up. 
and the production line of everything has gone so more expensive. A lot of uh, global interest comes into play in that. You take timber, like the reason for timber being so dear here is number one, a lot of it came out of um, either South America, which is also a lot very troubled over COVID, or some of it through the American. But the American demand for timber went huge, and the cost of timber globally has tripled. Uh, so it's it's an, mm. an extension of it was mainly it's other massive, markets, it, massive infrastructure like, like projects in the US. And yeah. as regards, just to address your what you said about the shops here, the one you mentioned there, PJ, would have been reliant uh, because of the you know where their headquarters is and the type of company they are. They sort of would have had more of a supply line through the UK and from the UK as one other big supermarket, which would be a UK company here, would have as well. And they are finding difficulties for sure, I think. Yeah. But the other supermarkets of German origin or of indigenous Irish origin, they have different supply lines of fresh fruit and vegetables coming in. So in the first instance, will we have a supply? I think we will. Will we uh, cost more? For sure. Because the world has gone that way. And it's at a time that the world needs a correction. I don't, you know, all the indicators people are saying to me, there will not be a recession. But I think there could, I think there may be a small recession. But some people like to call that a correction. And it just takes time mm -hmm. for, for the whole world to level out after COVID. But that will go into next year, PJ. So mind your few, Bob. Keep it safe. Have it for the essentials. Tread warily and live, you know, uh, as like you did uh, during the COVID. Live yeah. on that way to win the to win the um, the healthy time. Now that we're vaccinated and that we're coming into good times, two, do it steadily two, and do it in time. Two things. Lastly, one, yes. the EU has said it's pouring billions into this. Will any of it come our way? And if it does, what can we do with it? And secondly, bread, bread could be a problem, couldn't it? Well, the flour. Yeah, that's what I mean. The meant. flour is the problem because there's an, an uh, you know, it could the flour, the bulk of the flour that comes here via the UK has a Canadian input and that doesn't match some of the EU regulations. But but the EU could accept an easement on it. I've argued this for quite a while. The England left the EU, but Ireland is paying the price. Now I'm talking to the very right station and answering this. There are two very powerful men from Cork. Three, excuse me, there are three uh, very powerful to the top. There are more powerful men in Cork than any other country, perhaps, but there are three at the moment very powerful. And we need the EU to to subs subsidise how we get our goods because we're paying too big a cost of a price for England leaving. The mainland of Europe has none of this cost problem over the Brexit. So anything attached to Brexit, uh, they should see a way in helping us through until until the correction comes in the world, for sure. And the power was always in Cork, and it still is, even though the ESB might have occasion to switch out the lights, but the power is in Cork. And if you can use it to influence it, that we do get some sort of an easement on the supply chain, into Ireland, either the ferries or the container dippers or whatever way it would be perceived. I don't want to put any words in anybody's mouth, but we are paying a cost. And I did write to Ursula van der Leyen myself <coughs> in the spring of the year, pointing that out. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see where it goes. It leads to worrying time for people stocking their shelves and trying to keep them, get themselves shopped up for Christmas and all of those things. Eugene Drennan, president of the Irish Road Hall Association, thank you. I, I do know someone who has worked in supply chain for many years who told me that Tesco and Marks 
will be the worst affected by this because of so much of their stuff coming from the UK. On the other hand, Super Value, which would be another major major national brand name, they've changed their ordering system now to take account of delays in it. But flour is the problem because we, we, we had a milling and flour industry here. We don't have it anymore. And now look at us. 1850 Larry says it's not just truck drivers there's a shortage of bus drivers as well that's without coach tours coming back to normal Can we just talk The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM With McCarthy Insurance Group Call in person or call them now They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk CMIG.ie Access all areas on Cork's 96FM Your guide to nightlife on Leaside Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment Freddie White has been part of the fabric of the Irish music scene since the 70s and his popularity continues to this day You can catch Freddie live when he comes to Tristan Christchurch on Thursday, September 30th. Access all areas. Mary Green, Fiona Kennedy and Anna Mitchell, Steve Cooney and Dermot Byrne are all set to perform as part of the upcoming Cork Folk Festival at Triscoll in October. Further details can be found at corkfolkfestival.com Access all areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show, play, exhibition or gig coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us at aaa at 96fm.ie Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. Updates coming on the Ryanair press briefing. B- bunch of stuff coming back for next year. Whole load of routes coming back um, out of Cork with Ryanair in 2022. Uh, Maureen is filing details to Newsroom at the moment and we'll hopefully have some audio from the press briefing uh, very quickly for you. But there is a very long list has just been announced. Paddy says St. Patrick's Day is not our national day. Our national day is January 21st. That's the day of our independence. Well, Paddy, I haven't had a day off yet for January the 21st. I get me day off on St. Patrick's Day. So for me, Patrick's Day is my national holiday and always has been. Well, I take your point, because we've talked to people about the January 21st more than once on the programme. The advice seems to be with regard to ordering, particularly order early for Christmas. We've been told it all the time, always being told order early for Christmas. Like order now, order tomorrow, order this week, because the days of getting something in a week are gone for a while. Do you remember this time last year we were all ordering like Bilio online and you could order something and have it in two or three days. Those days are gone. And they won't be coming back anytime soon. Um, for the few months at least. So if you're ordering something, order it today. And get out and start talking to Santi. Start communicating with Santa Claus because he's going to be a very busy man and his own haulage crisis... We hope that won't affect youngsters this week or this year, you know. 90 days to Christmas, lads, we better get going. 1850-715-996. There was huge interest yesterday, post-programme, as they say, uh, with regard to uh, Nadim. Nadim is living in the Direct Provision Centre up at the Kinsale Road and has been working in Ireland since he came here a number of years ago. He worked as a security staff at the hospital during the COVID pandemic. He also worked in, working in the fast food chain in KFC uh, during the COVID pandemic. His original application for uh, asylum or refugee status has been turned down and he was applying for a, a leave to remain letter, 
And the man was very, very distressed and very upset yesterday afternoon talking to me on the programme and very frightened, I think, for his life and his safety should it happen that he would be uh, transported or deported back to India. And he, he really doesn't know what's going to happen. And he was frightened and he was crying. And afterwards... We called him back. We got some resources in place and some help in place for him. And we called him back a couple of times just to reassure that he was okay. Things began to happen in the afternoon. We reached out for him to the Department of Justice and we reached out for him to the Office of the Minister of Foreign Affairs and indeed to the Office of Antishuk. And a few things began to happen, didn't they, Fiona? Yeah, um, PJ, we... We sent an email to the Department of Justice yesterday looking for a statement with regards to Nadim's case. Now, um, as expected, they said that they cannot comment on an individual case like this, but they did go into a lot of detail about the process involved in an application like Nadine's and, um, you know, what what measures are being taken. And they said that the department recognises the crucial role all frontline workers are continuing to play during the COVID-19 pandemic. And as you said there, Nadim had gone into detail yesterday with you about the work that he had done during the pandemic um, and it says well the department does not comment on individual immigration cases each application for international protection is examined in detail on its individual merits taking all factors into account so I suppose everything that Dean was talking to you yesterday they will process all of that information and the permission to remain processed includes a full consideration of their private and family rights in accordance with the European Convention on Human Rights as well as consideration of their work situation among others. For those who are in the international protection process, our objective is to have decisions made on their applications and permission to remain considerations as soon as possible. This ensures that those who are found to be in need of our protection can receive it quickly and begin rebuilding their lives here with a sense of safety and security. For those found not to be in need of international protection, a full consideration of all aspects of their case under the process outlined above is considered before a deportation order is made. Mm. And I think yesterday with Nadim, he was very worried about that, that he would be deported very quickly. But I don't Um, think he will be. Well, we also contacted the Taoiseach's office, as you know. Mm -hmm. And in fact, yesterday afternoon, I can reveal to listeners now, and this is not something that happens often, by the way, um, Michal Martin himself called me. Um, I was at home sitting watching the television and the phone rang and it was Michal Martin calling me. Um, he'd gotten our message and he was very, very concerned by the story of, of, of Nadim and he did what politicians do. He, he said, I will make absolutely no promises, but what I will do is please reassure that man that the, he's not going anywhere just now. Uh, he has nothing to worry about in the short to medium term at least and that the Taoiseach's own office is now personally aware of his situation I believe we got an email back confirming that the Taoiseach's office was aware of the situation and uh, the Taoiseach told me on the telephone yesterday that he would see to it that Nadim's case was followed up uh, in in the uh, short to medium term and that he had for now would have nothing to worry about. He needn't worry. No one's going to turn up at four o'clock in the morning and, 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 and take him out of his room in Kinsale Road. That was the thing he was most frightened about. That's not going to happen, according to the Taoiseach speaking to me yesterday. 
And I think people were very concerned about Nadim yesterday after the phone call because clearly he was very distressed and upset. Now, I did speak to him um, after you were finished with the call and I, I rang him again yesterday afternoon and he was with a friend in the in the Kinsale Road Direct Provision Centre so he wasn't alone and I did text him on yesterday evening to tell him about the, the Taoiseach's message to yourself and he said thank you for that. So um, I suppose it is a case that we will follow here on the opinion Indeed. line. Indeed it is. I would follow with, with, with detail. Such, such a lovely guy caught in a horrible situation. But I was very surprised. To, we knew the Taoiseach's office had acknowledged, but I was uh, surprised to get a call, personal call from Michal Martin yesterday afternoon. And what he uh, saying to me effectively was, please tell that man not to worry. Uh, nothing's going to happen. In, in the short term, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with his case uh, as, as best we can. Right, we've just had some audio in from Maureen at the Ryanair briefing. She's been speaking with Eddie Wilson, uh, Ryanair's chief exec. An airport without passengers is just a building, and today, you know, we're going to restore our two aircraft base in Cork, 60 of our people coming back to work, pilots and cabin crew. We didn't make any of our people redundant. We kept our airplanes ready. We negotiated hard here with Cork, two aircraft back in, 20 new routes, um, you know, from December 1st, um, people should book early, prices generally, because there's less seat capacity around Europe, are probably going to be higher, um, and I think we're in very good shape for next summer. We've had a difficult year, almost a billion euro loss, but I think we're in in good shape, it's going to be a long road back to profitability, but we uh, see huge potential at Cork. It's really exciting as well for people, you know, who are seeing this on social media and hearing it on the news today. Everyone needs a bit of a boost after we the We do. Year. We need a boost. And, you know, you need to see people moving. I mean, I've been travelling extensively throughout this pandemic, you know, as part of my job. And when you go back into airports and just see the normal hustle and bustle of people moving around, the only difference is masks. Though, even in places like Denmark, where I was last week, there are no masks, you know, anywhere. And actually, except until you get on the aircraft. So, I, there's real hope that... We'll get people back moving, whether it's for business, visiting friends and relatives, or holidays, or whoever wants to get to a Christmas market out of Cork, do it now. Did you have concerns about uh, reopening here? And Because I know things were, you know, with the runway closing and obviously the effects of on the aviation industry of the pandemic. Was there concerns there? Yeah, there was, because, you know, um, the government, I think, um, need to put a, uh, a programme together to say we're, we're an island nation and we need connectivity. There's no other way of getting here. And if you've got an airline that lost a billion euros last year, we're then going to put our aircraft where we can get the best return in the in the in the short term, and Cork has been able to do that. We've had a few bumps along the way, but like everybody's had a few bumps with the COVID crisis. But we're now back. There are a professional group of people here, uh, and they want to secure traffic. We've done the same in Shannon. We've done the same in Kerry, and the same in Knock. Dublin is an outlier, potentially thirty-five percent down. Um, but like, you know, as I said, if Eamon Ryan is listening to this, you need to extend the uh, the scheme in Dublin uh, out until October, as Cork have done here, not just ended in June. That means Ryanair will restore all of its Irish traffic back 100% of what it was in summer 19. And I think that's going to be great news for people who are in the tourism industry and they can they can plan that there's going to be tourists here next summer. And is it December 1st is the base is opening? That's December 1st, the base is opening. Fantastic. So they'll all be back in their blue uniforms on that day and we're looking forward to it. Brilliant. And November 22nd is when the airport's opening, so you will have flights in and out from... Yeah, I think there's a couple of flights before that from other bases, but the uh, the first Ryanair... Um, uh, the, the Ryanair Corkies will be taken off and uh, on December 1st from here on the on the early shift. 
Now that's uh, Eddie Wilson from Ryanair speaking in the last few minutes to Moraid about the announcement. To give you the list of where they're going after the news. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Yeah, we opened the show this morning uh, with a preview speaking to Eve Hegarty of RT Investigates about that primetime investigate program tonight where the inquiry is underway at CUMH. You've heard about it there in the news. Aoife Hegarty was on the show with me first thing this morning. Also, we spoke to Callie, whose son, Alan, died, and they got a, a letter a couple of days before Christmas, a number of years later, to say that his organs had been taken, and then they discovered that they too had been incinerated, and Callie's thoughts last evening were, God, not again. Uh, my thoughts this morning. God Almighty, not again. And we've mentioned Donny, uh, Donny, whose daughter died. Uh, he campaigned for years uh, uh, for the group Parents for Justice to find out what happened. Carla says, I lost two children. They just took my first baby and I never saw him. I saw my second baby girl. She had a little hat on. Donny used to say the hat was to hide the scars on their heads. I got post-mortem results, but they never said what they did with the organs. I don't know where the babies are buried. I was devastated listening to Callie. Another caller quite upset by this baby story. It broke my heart to think professional people could make such a decision without parents' consent. Nobody should ever be able to make that decision again. We buried our baby, and to think of the carelessness shown is just heartbreaking. They had consented to a post-mortem, as both Callie said and Eve Hegarty said of the family's that'll feature in the documentary tonight. They had consented to a post-mortem. It's what afterward, what happened afterwards. They, they, they gave no consent. Carla says, I was in that unfortunate situation. Everything was given to be buried at Kilcully Cemetery. I don't know how that can be allowed. It's simply a disgrace. The programme is tonight, 9.35 on RTE1, RTE Investigates. 1850-715-996. Joanne was with me on the show in the early part of the year in the height of the post-Christmas surge in the pandemic when schools were closed and there was no nothing certain as to what would happen. And there was a particular crisis in schools for kids with additional needs. And we spoke about Bob and how Bob was dealing with the situation, uh, dealing with it as best he could, I guess. Joanne's back on the line. Hi, Joanne. Hi, PJ. Thanks for having me on again. Good to, um, good to talk to you. How is Bob doing to start off? You know, not great. Um, We're hoping that things are stabilising now for him. But it was actually once things started to open up and he understood that school was coming back, that his worries kind of came to the surface and he started to ask, you know, I mean, he he has limited conversation now. So when he's starting to talk about, will school be there in December? Like he was really expressing the worry, like that school was not as... um, not a given in the way that he had understood it to be yeah. prior to that. 
Um, and he had he he really started to develop a lot of anxious behaviours. Then um, pacing the floor, screaming, um, you know, really things that were very out of character for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. What we had then was um, we had a wonderful service from Enable Ireland um, who were really supportive. Um, I know for people now who don't understand, like the, I I know it's it's awful to kind of be bandying out, um, you know, terminologies and all these for for people who aren't part of the services and haven't a, a, a clue as to what's going on. But we have in Cork, the progression of disability services has been rolled out. This is where they brought them all under one umbrella. And said it would be better, but it's not. Yeah, yeah, and I, and it, I mean, in ways it might be, but it's actually worked out as an awful lot of work for parents, but for me anyway, um, because I've been told now that I coordinate the services, so it, you know, I'm kind of acting like a bit of an office, um, as well as a carer, and you know, when you're a carer that's in a crisis situation, you're you know, really paddling furiously anyway to keep things ticking over and, you know, balanced. But we have a wonderful service from Enable Ireland and they were very supportive and they really prioritised him. If he was in crisis, we had, it, it kind of culminated in a situation where he was throwing, trying to throw himself out a window. He was so anxious. It was absolutely terrifying. I had to wrestle him to the ground he was trying to throw him, run out into traffic. I had to wrestle him to the ground. And like, he's six foot three and I'm five foot six or five foot five. And like, he's 16 and I'm 56 years of age. Like it's, you know, it, it, it only for the fact that I'm fit and I did karate, you know, I, I don't know where the strength came from. I, it was literally like one of those situations where you don't know. I thought we were going to see the two of us finished on the road under a bus. I really, I have nightmares about it. Absolute nightmares about it. And this was because so, of his anxieties? Anxieties, yeah. Pure anxieties. Like, and like he's, you know, he he was struggling anyway. But it was, I, I, it was the opening up of things that kind of pushed him over the edge because it brought to the surface all of his anxieties, all of his worries about the future and he can't express them in any other way except mm. behaviourally. So um as I say, in our enable and the school and everyone very supportive. Wonderfully supportive actually. Mm. So we got an emergency referral to CAMS. Again, they were uh, really, really supportive. Um did you get to see and, somebody you but did? they yes. Yes. Oh. And and it was very worthwhile, but they feel that it's not is a problem that they can deal with. Yeah. So they put us back to enable uh, for psychological services. So you would need a, obviously a behavioural support plan for yeah. home. I know. Again, these are technical issues that just, just to people, explain who, people who are part of it don't understand. But that. you you need the support and the plans and yeah. the this is not. One of the reasons so, why Cams might well, have sent him back would be that they would have deemed it not to be a psychiatric issue and it's psychiatric. They, they didn't. Deal with. Yeah. 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 Yeah, which is good, like, yeah. you know, and I agree with them. It's not, it's, it's, he's trying to articulate his anxieties, but it's behavioural. Yes. Um, but, you know, like we had to go down the CAMS route because, it, you know, you have to kind of rule that out anyway, yeah. if nothing else. And it was an emergency situation and, you know, and, and they gave us tools to deal with it as well. But 
essentially it's back to our uh, disability network service now, which is Enable Ireland. And they don't have an appointed psychologist. Mm. So we're six months into the rollout of the service. And, and no offence to them, they have people who are filling it in on a part-time base, you know, on a stopgap solution. But the HSE has not given, as far as I understand it, has not given the go-ahead uh, or has not employed psychologists. It should be psychologists as well, yeah. because there are 750 children with Enable Ireland. As far as that, those are the figures that I'm, I, I've been given to understand. So that's not going. That's more than one psychologist. Right. <laughs> you know. Um, so there so, is there is no psychologist accessible to you through the service that no, Bob like, uses. Everything. When I rang up, like with the, for this, like they couldn't give me a name of anyone. So there'll be no behavioural support plan for himself or his teacher. So, or me. So there's none for home, there's none for school. You know, and that's going, like that, so having gone to the the most senior service, I suppose, in one sense, which is CAMS, we're back to treading water yeah. for his his anxieties. So that's really where where I'm at. So I've emailed all the relevant authorities, like the HSE and the um, the ministers, uh, Mr. Donnelly and uh, Anne Rabbit. I that was yesterday. I've no because it's all kind of unfolding over the last number of days, and I've I'm, I wouldn't expect an email back from them yet or anything like that. But um, this is where we're at, um, and you know I feel it's something that people should know about because. You know, this this is a service that had, was 20 years at least in the planning. Yes. I mean, I was involved in, on the local implementation groups when Bob was, what, six? Yeah, yeah. Like he's 16 now, so that's 10 years. And, you know, uh, so it hasn't come as a surprise to people. It shouldn't have come as a surprise to the HSC that they were going to need psychologists. But I think what has happened is that because the... Uh, waiting lists for diagnosis have become so big yeah. nationwide that people are now, if, if psychologists seem to be t- diverted into that, into diagnosis and assessment. And there is nothing for yeah. treatment, behaviour plans, long-term uh, therapies, school interventions, anything like school support, anything like that um, has gone by the wayside. And, you know, that that's the situation that that is going to have a long term impact on um, children with intellectual disabilities, long term and their families. Yes. Um, and I mean, the, 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 the other flip side of the coin then is I, because of this, the, the situation that um, Bob was in with sort of dysregulated behavior, eating and his eating habits have become a problem okay. for him. Um, so then I asked for a referral to a dietitian. So I got a referral to the community dietitian only to be told that if you're involved with a disability network team, that you have to go to their dietitian. And lo and behold, the HSE never negotiated for uh, dietitians as part of the multi-D teams. And oh, no, no. You got referred to a dietitian? Yeah. And the dietitian? The dietitian? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You got referred you to know, a dietitian I mean, it's, it's, and the dietitian said, yeah. sorry, because you're involved with Disability Network, I can't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And like the thing is that those, you know, those those team, uh, those services in Cork, like um, Enable and uh, Brothers of Charity and Cope and all that, would have employed dietitians as part of their previous service. Yeah. 
But because we have the progression of disability services now and those have not been negotiated for by the HSE, you're not automatic, you know, they're not part of the multi-D team. And like people underestimate, and obviously the HSE underestimates how, how important diet is for people with disabilities. It's hugely important because you can have, you know, first of all, you can have impulse eating. Mm. But, you know, you also don't know, like with people, whether, you know, whether they're getting what their nutritional, what their nutritional needs are. So you have, while you can have obesity on one hand, you can also have a level of malnutrition. Yeah. Because you don't, you know, with, with that, you could have 10, they could have 10 cakes in a day. No, I'm talking about people now with it, obviously with uh, intellectual disabilities more and, and other complex needs like that. But, yes. you know, Bob won't, like people like Bob won't, he won't really regulate his own eating. So it has to be regulated for him. So therefore I have to, I have to know, like, it's not the same as when I was, had my other children and, you know, they can, they, they can regulate it. You know, you can tell them, well, it's healthier to eat an apple now than it is to eat a cake. Yes. But there's other issues around eating maybe people aren't aware of, like you can have, um, uh, you know, poor swallow yeah. with people with uh, disabilities. So that eating more complex issues, you can have, um, chewing can be an issue obviously, but also muscle weakness around the mouth area. You can have oral sensitivities that they're seeking sensation there's, through their mouths. There's a hundred so cold sensitivities. It goes on and on. You absolutely How- need a dietitian to work with a multi D as part of a multi D team. Joanne, I can hear Sorry that. I Go can on. hear <laughs> I can hear and I recognize as a parent yeah. the stress in your voice. Yeah. You must yeah. you must be you oh, must yeah. be up to walls at the moment, yeah. Um as I say the some of the, the what we've implemented from uh, the OT and from the physio is gradually having an effect. But it's we need the psychology, we need the behavioural support plan, um, like and we need we need a dietitian as well because the eating I need to know like you know it was I got his bloods done like and it was a total surprise to me he was on iron like but sure you know you have to have that's where you have to have the the. The knowledge, like, you know, I'm I'm a carer, I can Google stuff, but like, and I'm an educated person, but I need the support of the multi-D team for him to have this. I was just about to ask that question. Thing. It's a question I regularly ask parents, Joanne, like, who, who minds you? Mm. Oh, yeah, like, I mean... <sighs> uh, well, who minds me? My community, really family community um we have a very supportive community in our athletics community um and park run my balancolic athletics park run the school mm-hmm. extremely supportive as they say enable ireland actually have been wonderful wonderful ot wonderful physio um but you know they can't do the job of a psychologist either I know, and and this stuff like, they're not going to have that insight, and they wouldn't put they wouldn't pretend. To, and like I don't, I I'm not targeting an enable for no, for no, no, um no no or anything. It's the HSE is the problem. Yeah, uh, you must be losing sleep and all you know? for this. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because like you said, he's a big strapping yeah. lad. 
Yeah. Oh yeah, like six foot three, like you know, and getting bigger, like he, and it's proportionate as well. Like his his elbow can rest on my shoulder. Yeah. So if he decides to, been, if he decides oh, to make yeah. a bolt for yeah. it. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, you you you'd want your running shoes on, like. I know. You know, like, and I think on top of this, like, it it all feeds into though too, like, you know, we haven't really safeguarded. I know the pandemic was a very unpredictable thing, but we didn't really safeguard the services for people with disabilities at all. Um, you know, and and the the it's all fed into it now. So we now have a, a kind of a an accumulated situation mm. where nothing has been working over the last eighteen months, and people are very very dysregulated children are very dysregulated over right. it and that's and, that's and it the, will take a long time it will take increased yeah. support pj we're not talking about the, the supports that we had 18 months ago two years ago and running on those we're talking we're yeah. going to have to have increased support there's, there's an awful lot of damage that has been done to that needs to be repaired joanne i wish you well i wish bob well i wish everybody else well uh, in, in the battle because it is a daily battle thank you for being with me again on the opinion line that is Joanne Murphy so no psychologist to enable Ireland not their fault no dietitian available again not the service's fault and the lad is 16 six foot three, and bigger than his poor mummy and has desperate anxieties and is running onto the road it's just it's heartbreaking stuff it really is can we just talk the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Let's get down, let's get down to business. We're back to the music. The Cork's 96FM music panel gives you the power to pick our playlist. Click 96FM.ie now. 96FM.ie now. Just like this. Take the 10-minute survey and you could win a 100 euro Just Eat voucher. The power to pick what we play. Pick what we play. Let's get down, let's get down to business. Join the Quark's 96FM music panel. Find the link on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Or see 96FM.ie. We got a statement from HSE Cork Kerry Community Healthcare. Effectively, we got a leaving cert essay. But the paragraph at the end is about the only bit that is relevant to the question we asked. But in the specific case of the Enable Ireland, there are assigned psychologists to each of the teams. The teams have also received an additional uplift of psychology posts from HSE National Development Posts for Children Disability Services, which are being progressed for recruitment. There are gaps in terms of access to dietetic services for children with disability. An interim plan is being put in place to address these gaps as well as seeking additional funding in 2022 for additional posts. Which tells us nothing really relevant to what Joanne was saying. But thank you, HSE, for the statement. 1850-715-996. I've been saying for years, I was saying it years ago, that, you know, you can talk about recycling or getting rid of plastic, you know, taking plastic out of the system, not using plastic, cutting down on plastic. You can talk about that until the cows come home. But plastic is not going anywhere. So maybe we should find better ways to reuse it and recycle it. And I've always been a fan of turning old plastic into 
new things. Like, you know those glass building bricks that you see in some offices? They're now making them out of recycled plastic and lots of other things. Here in Cork, there's a new sportswear brand, which is made entirely out of used plastic bottles. Fascinating. The brand is called B-Mona. Hi, Caro. Good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Very good. So you're making leggings and sports bras out of old plastic bottles. Yes, that's right. Explain that to me. Well, uh, so all the idea of this recycling um, has been always in the back of my head. I used to dive a lot. And then when the pandemic started, it was the perfect opportunity to do something about it. So and on top of that as well, I always have been passionate about fashion and luxury. And many of Irish girls here as well, you know, they love fashion. So I mixed that and I thought, okay, this is the time to do it. Why not to create an active wear brand, comfy, you know, spe- specifically for this time of during the pandemic that we are at home and made from uh, recycled plastic bottles. So how do you do that? You take the bottles, obviously, and I presume melt them down and you turn them into water, kind of a, a thread, is it? Yes. So we, it's, the plastic is coming from the collections from the plastic bottles from the oceans. They, they treat, they treat the, these bottles and they cleanse. Then they melt this and turn into a yarn and uni- unite again. You create again the fabric, you know, mm. and then you create the garment. That is the, the old purpose of this. Right. And I'm, I'm reading here an article about you where it says you have turned exactly 18,324 plastic bottles into your activewear. How do you know how many bottles you used? Oh, yeah, we know that. So we, we have our Danish partner. As you know, uh, Danish, uh, they care a lot of environment. So they're really good in this. So in the factory that we are doing this, um, they collect these plastic bottles. And they we know exactly how many plastic bottles is in each garment. Let's say the sport bra, uh, there are 11 plastic bottles. And for the leggings are just uh, 25 plastic bottles. Right. That's that's the next question I was going to ask you. So each pair of leggings that you produce is made from 25 old plastic bottles. Yes. Wow. And are these the regular, like, drink bottles? Like, I've got a... Okay, I probably shouldn't have people give out to me. I have a plastic bottle with water in here next to me on the desk. Those kind of bottles? Yes. Yes, exactly. Those kind of bottles. They, they have to stop to use this. At, at least here in Ireland, there, you can find some uh, brand bottle of waters that are now recycling the bottles, yes. which is amazing, you know? Yes. So, yeah, that kind of plastic bottles. Wow, wow. And and then are you doing that here or is, is it being made in Denmark? No, they uh, are made in Vietnam at the moment. Okay. Before to go with them, you know, we did uh, a big research. Uh, we tried with uh, different partners here in, in the uh, European Union. But we we got in love of these ones, these partners, the Danish partners. They have the the, the factory in Vietnam because they work with SA eight thousand, which is the highest standard in social responsibility. You gotcha. know, and we really care. Like, if we are doing this product, we want to have all the process. You know, since the beginning, that is a fair product. You know, right. uh, our packaging as well. You know, is full recycle. You know, uh, we don't we avoid plastics 
at all, like uh, virgin plastic. For example, in our garments, we don't put tags. You know, the typical tag when you go to the store and you buy any clothes, you yes. have to then take out that. We don't do that. Okay. We don't use it, you know? I see. I see. Now, your next project is that you're going to try and make clothes out of old fishing nets. Is that the same yes, process? Uh, yes, it's very similar. Um, it's a big issue that in the in the sea, in the oceans, it's not just plastic as well. It's a lot of fish nets. So that is the next step. And I think a few brands are doing that. Um, but I think it's going to become the next thing for many brands like us that are trying to be sustainable uh, and trying to help somehow, you know, the environment. Now, what's important as well to most people, Carlo, is, you know, the competitiveness of the price. So how competitive are your prices? Yeah, uh, to be honest, we don't produce in China. And the reason why, as I said before, is because, you know, you just go and you make massive production yeah. for nothing, for one euro. We pay more for, for our garments, of course. And the price uh, we is between, you know, it's not cheap that like in pennies, let's say, mm. uh, but it's cheaper than Lululemon, you know, which is <laughs> gotcha. a very well-known yeah, yeah, now you I know? know what you mean. It's somewhere in between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Monica, and, Monica says clothes made out of plastic bottles. That is amazing. And I have to say, it is amazing. It's an incredible story. And you're, 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 now, that's not a Cork accent, Carol. So tell me how you came to be here. Uh, I'm originally from Chile, um, yeah. so I'm a big fan of the sea, to be honest. Yes. So when we moved here, that was one of the reasons, because it's full of sea and we can practice a sport here. My husband got a job here uh, four years ago. So, yeah, this is now home for us, to be honest. Cork is where we live now. <laughs> and you're bringing a wonderful idea uh, with you, and it's fantastic. Thank you very much. That is Caro, uh, the woman behind B Mona. They're making uh, leggings and sports bras, and I'm sure later on other such things, out of plastic bottles. 11 bottles per sports bra and 25 bottles per pair of leggings. It's fascinating. And they're produced them in Vietnam through a, Dan a Danish company, but it's a cork brand and a cork innovation. That is fabulous. 1850-715-996. Quick reminder to your Premier League live back this Saturday at 96mm.ie with Trevor Welsh and all powered by TalkSport. Live coverage of Manchester United v Everton at 12.30. Wolves against Newcastle at 3. Brighton v Arsenal at half past five. Trevor and the team with all the usual content. It's the Premier League Live online with now stream live Premier League action with the now sports or sports extra membership. Your sport on your terms. Streaming only the games that matter to you. Listen Saturday on the Cork's 96FM app or you can go to 96FM.ie. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Cork's 96FM. Now we were hearing there before the news at 11 and in the 11 o'clock news about the routes being reopened by Ryanair. There was a very big briefing at the airport this morning and they are reopening for the winter and for the summer of next year, reopening their base, basing 
uh, aircraft at the airport. And for next summer, they've got a very, very long list of destinations. All the old favourites back for next summer and some new ones as well by the looks of the list. Uh, Pat Dawson, the Irish Travel Agents Association. Pat, a good news day at last for aviation. Good morning. Yes. Uh, good morning, PJ. Yes, it's great news. Uh, the 20 new routes, uh, a big, big investment by Cork Airport as such, and uh, we're, we're delighted to see it and uh, badly, badly needed a shot in the arm. Now, Ryanair were making noises there a couple of weeks ago saying that the cost of flying could go up, and will go up, in fact. Is it going to go up much? Well, I mean, the, the, I mean, the, we have to have, uh, you know, two dogs in the race, as I call it. And uh, so we need Aer Lingus to come on now and uh, stick a, a good number of routes. And, and what we need badly in Cork is competition. Uh, PJ, it's very, very important because um, a lot of routes there probably Aer Lingus won't go to and therefore there'll be no competition on them. Uh, and, you know, we're going to be bombarded with fares from 9.99 and everything else. I, mean, I was booking a, a flight to the States there uh, this morning and uh, uh, to, to Orlando um, in December to see family because it, it'll be open. And I, I started off with a fare of, um, I think it was started off at 3.89 and by the time I had my seats got and, uh, and all the rest of it, it was 600 euros, you know. So, uh, you know, this from thing, I, you know, I think it should be barred personally myself yeah. because it's very misleading by the time, you know, you, you can't, uh, like it's a one-way seat, uh, you haven't even got a seat on the plane uh, as such. So, um, you know, but having said all of that, I mean, we need competition on routes and, and certainly... You know, the more competition we have, uh, yeah. the, the lesser the fares will be. And that's very important. What are you hearing from, from Aer Lingus? I mean, obviously, this is a very uh, solid move by Ryanair that they are resuming. Uh, Cork Summer 22 will be the same as Cork Summer 19, possibly even with additions on it. What do you know about where Aer Lingus are planning? Are they going to have an announcement soon? Do you know? I would hope so, and and they seem to be a bit behind the eight ball. That has to be said as such. And uh, you know, I wish they would come out and and uh, you know give people a, a good idea of where they're going to. I, uh, I I'm expecting news on that fairly fairly soon, and uh, I hope it matches up. Uh, it I, I certainly there'll be a lot of routes that Rare Lingus will not be going to that Reiner have announced uh, this morning because Reiner their routes that Reiner have 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 a long relationship uh, both inbound and outbound as such. So. We'll wait and see, but uh, you know, uh, one thing we don't want ha- is a situation where where Cork is 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 that much dearer than, than Dublin as such. Therefore, competition is great, but you know, it's great to have those twenty new routes and uh, and Cork Airport need all the support in the world. And I'd say to people out there, you look support Cork Airport. They badly need it. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. they were at about three million passengers. Uh, they probably won't get there. Probably maybe two and a bit uh, next year, but they need support from everyone uh, within a 100 mile radius of, of the airport. Great to see the industry coming back though, Pat. Thank you very much. Pat Dawson of the Irish Travel Agents Association. Just the full Ryanair list, to mind the winter ones um, but the summer 22 list from Ryanair is Alicante's in there, Bordeaux in France, Carcassonne, France, Faro in Portugal, Gdansk in Poland, Girona in Italy, Gran Canaria, Lanzarote, Liverpool, uh, London, Gatwick, Stansted and Luton all there, Malaga and Mallorca, Milan, Poznan in, in Poland, isn't it? And Reus in Spain and Tenerife all confirmed to be starting 
again next summer with Ryanair from Cork. 1850-715-996. On the bank holidays, good um, public holidays, whatever, this holiday we're supposed to get, this new holiday. No, Good Friday is a bank holiday. Our company closes on that day, but we have to take it out of our annual leave. So bank holidays and public holidays are not the same. You are, of course, correct, uh, caller, or text, was it a text? It's the one little quirk in our calendar in that Good Friday is a bank holiday, but Good Friday is not a public holiday. Now, I haven't worked Good Friday in years. It's just a thing. It's got nothing to do with religion. I just don't work Good Friday ever. Um, and... Um, I take the day off. It's a leave day. You have to take the leave day. It's not a public holiday. But that, I think that's the only one. Like the August Bank Holiday Monday is a public holiday. Patrick's Day is a public holiday. The June Bank Holiday is a public You know, all those are public holidays. But Good Friday is the exception. Can you? Now, be honest with me here, right? And um, <laughs> if you're 22, this question kind of doesn't apply to you, right? But let's say you're a 32, Right? 32. Can you still fit into the jeans you wore when you were 21? Right? So you're 32 or 31 or 40. 41. Can you get into the jeans? 23. Can you get into the jeans you wore when you were 21? The last time I saw 32, which is what I was when I was 21, or 30, 32, was on the temperature gauge in, in Tenerife, like, or in Lanzarote. But according to, and this is a serious story, there's a, a man called Professor Roy Taylor, who is a leading expert on type 2 diabetes. And he said, at a major conference, he said, if you can no longer fit into the jeans you wore when you were 21, you were at risk of type 2 diabetes. Now, that's a fairly sweeping statement. Claire Nocton is a diabetes nurse. Claire, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Now, we know that people who are diagnosed with pre-diabetes, as in pre-type 2, are often advised mm-hmm. lose weight. And, and I do have one old friend who managed to evade diabetes, shall we say, by losing about two and a half mm-hmm. or nearly three stone. But the idea that we yeah. would try and get into the genes we were when we were 21, for most people, that's unachievable. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose that that uh, caption or that, um, you know, fitting into the genes of 21, as you say, it captured the imagination amid people set up. So it's probably just a novel way of saying, you know, if you are overweight for your height, particularly carrying weight around your abdomen, it does increase your risk for pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes. Um, but I suppose it's just, you know, um, another way of saying that, just, you know, I suppose to, to spark people's interest. Um, so maybe it's a journalism tactic, perhaps. Possibly, um, I possibly mean, it depends it when, you know, somebody may have been more overweight when they were 21 than they are now. So yeah. um, it's just... But look, we do know that people who are overweight run the risk of type 2 diabetes. So how does that happen? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I suppose type 2 diabetes, it, you know, I mean, diabetes is when, um, 
you know, a lifelong condition characterized by high blood glucose levels caused by lack of insulin or not enough working insulin. So a person with type 2 diabetes, their body is making insulin. It's not enough or their body's insulin isn't working. Um, When the body's insulin isn't working, we call this insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. And we know a good thing, uh, you know, one of the main contributing factors to insulin resistance is when a person is carrying weight around their abdomen. But, you know, another factor would be, say, if, if they're sedentary, they're not very physically active, that can also lead to insulin resistance. So basically, if you, you know, uh, aim to have a normal weight for your height and you aim to be regularly physically active, what is recommended for all adults, and you aim to have a healthy, balanced diet, as is what what is recommended for all adults, you are going a long way towards reducing your future risk Mm. for type 2 diabetes. The the enemy is visceral fat. Now, what is that and how would I know if I had it? Yeah, so visceral fat is when you're carrying extra weight around your middle, so around your abdomen, um, which th- that's, that's you know, where all your vital organs are and it can lead to um, insulin resistance. And I know Professor Taylor talks about how the pancreas and the liver store fat and that interrupts the insulin action in the body and things like that. So to know if you're carrying visceral fat, so um, it's you, you can measure your waist circumference and it's not the waist of your trousers. It would really be, you know, if you think anyone who's carrying weight around their tummy, their tummy is coming out over the top of their trousers. So to measure your waist circumference, you, you find your bottom rib, your hip, and you go halfway between those two points around where your belly button is. Right. And in inches for a woman, it sh- your, your waist circumference should be less than 32 inches. And for a man, it should be less than 37 inches. So um, I suppose so when, when sir, we talk the, about weight, the, the, the measure around the, the circumference, the me- yeah, right, the measure so put, around put your belly uh, button from start at your belly, belly button, button and finish exactly. at your belly button. That should be less than thirty-seven exactly. inches. <laughs> Excuse me, thirty-seven inches if you're a man, and thirty-two inches if you're a woman. Um, so that that's you know, so anyone can measure their own waist circumference at home. Um, so that that's how you'd know. So we, we would look, you know, when we're talking about weight, you know, having a weight appropriate for your height, you know, we talk about body mass index, but we also talk about, you know, your waist circumference because body mass index doesn't, you know, it, it just looks at body weight. It doesn't talk about muscle mass or weight yeah. from fluid or weight from fat or male versus female or anything like that. Yeah. So that the waist circumference is is really important. So again, anyone with, with you know, pre-diabetes type 2 or if you know you're at risk of, you know, you have additional risk factors for type 2 diabetes, you know, trying to keep your waist measurement, you know, down and within those parameters, you know, would be really useful for prevention and protecting your future health. Yeah. What what is an AC number or an A1C number? It's, It's a more complicated test, is it? So a HbA1c, so it, it's a blood test that would be done routinely, um, and it, 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 you know, it reflects the the blood glucose levels over the previous three months. 
So it can be used to diagnose diabetes. Right. Um, but then when a person is diagnosed with diabetes, it's a marker to check if their um, diabetes is is you know well controlled so it would be a routine blood test that everybody with diabetes should have you know um minimum of twice a year right so most people with pre-diabetes type 2 diabetes they'd have that routine blood test done maybe with their gp um and it it is true that pre-diabetes type 2 that that can actually be reversed if you if you lose weight and take control of your weight how would you know if you're normally in good health how would you know yeah. that you should get yourself checked, Claire? Yeah. So um, I suppose th- there's been many, many cases of people with type 2 diabetes who have managed to put their diabetes into remission. So it's not just pre-diabetes. So they, you, you know, you, you referred to the article in the Irish Times where Professor Roy Taylor, so that, that's a, a big UK study called the Direct Study looking at diabetes remission. Um, when so when when we talk about diabetes remission, so diabetes reversal sounds like it would be permanent that once it's gone, it's never coming back. Whereas diabetes remission, you know, um, people who took part in the trial, they lost significant amount of weight, especially around the abdomen. Um, and I think after two years, about thirty six percent of people with type two diabetes had managed to put their diabetes into remission. But remission, you know, what was critical for success of remission like your friend that you referred to he lost two and a half stone but maintaining that weight loss achieving and maintaining weight loss is critical for the success of pre-diabetes so so to answer your question um i suppose in terms of diabetes you know there's additional risk factors for type 2 diabetes so so the two that most people would be aware of is being overweight for your height and not being very physically active. But there's other risk factors that aren't modifiable. So, you know, for example, age. So being being over 40 is a risk for type 2, but we see more diabetes over 50, 60, 70, 80. You know, if you have a significant family history of type 2 diabetes in your siblings, parents, um, a woman who has had diabetes during pregnancy, that's a future risk for type 2 diabetes. Anyone who is on um, blood pressure, cholesterol medication, there you know, um, there are things we see parallel with type 2 diabetes. So with people, you know, th- there's other medications that are risks for type 2 as well, so um, such so, so as like steroids and things. So if, if kind of any listeners are ticking those boxes, they're thinking, I'm at risk for type 2, the only way to rule out or diagnose diabetes is getting bloods done with the okay. GP because your body may not necessarily warn you. So you could have type 2 diabetes and not know it and be walking around for months and years. So the, the routine checkups for everybody over 40 um, is, is good. The same way as you NCT your car every two years, it's no harm going for your routine checkup and your routine blood tests um, with, with your GP. Okay. All right. Listen, thanks for being with us and just, um, I suppose, uh, start a discussion on type 2 diabetes. That's Claire Nocturne, diabetes nurse. This story uh, that was in the the Irish Times today has been in other papers. This uh, Professor Roy Taylor saying that if you can't get into the same genes that you could get into when you were 21, you could be at risk. There's a bit more to it than, re- than meets the eye, but certainly I guess it's worthy of discussion. Thank you for that, Claire. Before we go today, Little bit of good news. Do you remember this this conversation? Here we go. 
myself and my partner have been searching high and low to try and find anything now at this stage for the past 18 months and we have no luck whatsoever like I'm just saying to Fiona I'm send, I'm easily sending up to like 7 to 10 emails a day and that's Tuesday Monday, Tuesday, Saturday, Sunday every day that's Emma. A couple of weeks ago, she was very emotional, trying to find a house for herself and her partner, Darren, searching for 18 months. She got in touch. They got a place. They moved in last Thursday. And they are over the moon. And why wouldn't they be? And we are over the moon for them. That's brilliant news for Emma and Darren, and she called us to let us know. Thanks for that. If you need to contact Diabetes Ireland, you can contact them at diabetes.ie. That's their website. Or they have a phone number, which I'll give you tomorrow. But for now, we need to go. The programme, edited by Fiona Corcoran, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. We are delighted for Emma, and we'll see you tomorrow just after nine. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.